welcome to Lost in the Woods Fairy Tales. I'm your host, Autumn Woods, and I'm so excited you're here. We're continuing our three-part episode arc of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. Last time, we left Kai asleep at the feet of the Snow Queen, flying in her magic sleigh toward her icy kingdom. Unbeknownst to Kai, he is being taken there to rid him once and for all of the long-term damage inflicted on him by the devil's evil mirror. And he won't be able to free himself alone. Now, we join Gerda on her quest to find the one whom her heart loves and set him free. So, let's get lost, as we read part two of... The Snow Queen, A Tale in Seven Stories Third Story, The Flower Garden of the Woman Skilled in Magic How did little Gerda get along when Kai did not come back? Where could he be? Nobody knew. Nobody could give them any news of him. All that the boys could say was that they had seen him hitch his little sled to a fine big sleigh, which had driven down the street and out through the town gate. Nobody knew what had become of Kai. Many tears were shed and little Gerda sobbed hardest of all. People said that he was dead, that he must have been drowned in the river not far from town. Oh, how gloomy those long winter days were. But spring and its warm sunshine came at last. Kai is dead and gone, little Gerda said. I don't believe it, said the sunshine. He's dead and gone, she said to the swallows. We don't believe it, they sang. Finally, little Gerda began to disbelieve it too. One morning, she said to herself, I'll put on my new red shoes, the ones Kai has never seen, and I'll go down by the river to ask about him. It was very early in the morning. She kissed her old grandmother, who was still asleep, put on her red shoes, and all by herself, she hurried out through the town gate and down to the river. Is it true that you have taken my own little playmate? I'll give you my red shoes if you will bring him back to me. It seemed to her that the waves nodded very strangely, so she took off her red shoes that were her dearest possession and threw them into the river. But they fell near the shore, and the little waves washed them right back to her. It seemed that the river could not take her dearest possession because it did not have little Kai. However, she was afraid that she had not thrown them far enough, so she clambered into a boat that lay among the reeds, walked to the end of it, and threw her shoes out into the water again. But the boat was not tied, and her movements made it drift away from the bank. She realized this and tried to get ashore, but by the time she reached the other end of the boat, it was already more than a yard from the bank and was fast gaining speed. Little Gerda was so frightened that she began to cry and no one was there to hear her except the sparrows. They could not carry her to land, but they flew along the shore, twittering, We are here! Here we are! as if to comfort her. The boat drifted swiftly down the stream, and Gerda sat there quite still in her stocking feet. Her little red shoes floated along behind, but they could not catch up with her because the boat was gathering headway. It was very pretty on both sides of the river where the flowers were lovely, the trees were old, and the little hillsides afforded pasture for cattle and sheep. But not one single person did Gerda see. Perhaps the river will take me to Kai, she thought, and that made her feel more cheerful. She stood up and watched the lovely green banks for hour after hour. Then she came to a large cherry orchard, in which there was a little house with strange red and blue windows. It had a thatched roof, and outside it stood two wooden soldiers who presented arms to everyone who sailed past. Gerda thought they were alive and called out to them, but of course they did not answer her. She drifted quite close to them as the current drove the boat toward the bank. Gerda called even louder, and an old, old woman came out of the house. She leaned on a crooked stick, she had on a big sun hat, and on it were painted the most glorious flowers. You poor little child, the old woman exclaimed. 
However did you get lost on this big swift river? And however did you drift so far into the great wide world? The old woman waded right into the water, caught hold of the boat with her crooked stick, pulled it in to shore, and lifted little Gerda out of it. Gerda was very glad to be on dry land again, but she felt a little afraid of this strange old woman, who said to her, Come and tell me who you are and how you got here. Gerda told her all about it. The woman shook her head and said, Hmm, hmm. And when Gerda had told her everything and asked if she hadn't seen little Kai, the woman said he had not yet come by, but that he might be along any day now. And she told Gerda not to take it so to heart, but to taste her cherries and to look at her flowers. These were more beautiful than any picture book, and each one had a story to tell. Then she led Gerda by the hand into her little house, and the old woman locked the door. The windows were placed high up on the walls, and through their red, blue, and yellow panes, the sunlight streamed in a strange mixture of all the colors there are. But on the table were the most delicious cherries, and Gerda, who was no longer afraid, ate as many as she liked. While she was eating them, the old woman combed her hair with a golden comb. Gerda's pretty hair fell in shining yellow ringlets on either side of a friendly little face that was as round and blooming as a rose. I've so often wished for a dear little girl like you, the old woman told her. Now you'll see how well the two of us will get along. While her hair was being combed, Gerda gradually forgot all about Kai for the old woman was skilled in magic. But she was not a wicked witch. She only dabbled in magic to amuse herself, but she wanted very much to keep little Gerda. So she went out into her garden and pointed her crooked stick at all the rose bushes. In the full bloom of their beauty, all of them sank down into the black earth without leaving a single trace behind. The old woman was afraid that if Gerda saw them, they would remind her so strongly of her own roses and of little Kai. Then she would run away again. Then Gerda was led into the flower garden. How fragrant and lovely it was. Every known flower of every season was there in full bloom. No picture book was ever so pretty and gay. Gerda jumped for joy and played in the garden until the sun went down behind the tall cherry trees. Then. She was tucked into a beautiful bed under a red silk coverlet quilted with blue violets. There she slept, and there she dreamed as gloriously as any queen on her wedding day. The next morning, she again went out into the warm sunshine to play with the flowers, and this she did for many a day. Gerda knew every flower by heart, and, plentiful though they were, she always felt that there was one missing but which one she didn't quite know. One day, she sat looking at the old woman's sun hat, and the prettiest of all the flowers painted on it was a rose. The old woman had forgotten this rose on her hat when she made the real roses disappear in the earth. But that's just the sort of thing that happens when one doesn't stop to think. Why aren't there any roses here? said Gerda. She rushed out among the flower beds, and she looked and she looked, but there wasn't a rose to be seen. Then she sat down and cried, but her hot tears fell on the very spot where a rose bush had sunk into the ground, and when her warm tears moistened the earth, the bush sprang up again, as full of blossoms as it was when it disappeared. Gerda hugged it and kissed the roses. She remembered her own pretty roses and thought of little Kai. Oh, how long I have been delayed, the little girl said. I should have been looking for Kai. Don't you know where he is? She asked the roses. Do you think that he is dead and gone? He isn't dead, the roses told her. We have been down in the earth where the dead people are, but Kai is not there. Thank you, said little Gerda, who went to all the other flowers, put her lips near them, and asked. Do you know where little Kai is? But every flower stood in the sun and dreamed its own fairy tale, or its story. Though Gerda listened to many, many of them, 
not one of the flowers knew anything about Kai. What did the tiger lily say? Do you hear the drum? Boom, boom. It was only two notes. Always, boom, boom. Hear the women wail. Hear the priest chant. The Hindu woman in her long red robe stands on the funeral pyre. The flames rise around her and her dead husband. But the Hindu woman is thinking of that living man in the crowd around them. She is thinking of him whose eyes are burning hotter than the flames. Of him whose fiery glances have pierced her heart more deeply than these flames that soon will burn her body to ashes. Can the flame of the heart die in the flame of the funeral pyre? I don't understand that at all, little Gerda said. That's my fairy tale, said the lily. What did the trumpet flower say? An ancient castle rises high from a narrow path in the mountains. The thick ivy grows leaf upon leaf where it climbs to the balcony. There stands a beautiful maiden. She leans out over the balustrade to look down the path. No rose on its stem is as graceful as she, nor is any apple blossom in the breeze so light. Hear the rustle of her silk gown, sighing. Will he never come? Do you mean Kai? Little Gerda asked. I am talking about my story, my own dream, the trumpet flower replied. What did the little snowdrop say? Between the trees, a board hangs by two ropes. It is a swing. Two pretty little girls with frocks as white as snow and long green ribbons fluttering from their hats are swinging. Their brother, who is bigger than they are, stands behind them on the swing, with his arms around the ropes to hold himself. In one hand, he has a little cup, and in the other, a clay pipe. He is blowing soap bubbles. And as the swing flies, the bubbles float off in all their changing colors. The last bubble is still clinging to the bowl of his pipe and fluttering in the air as the swing sweeps to and fro. A little black dog, light as a bubble, is standing on his hind legs and trying to get up in the swing. But it does not stop. High and low the swing flies until the dog loses his balance, barks, and loses his temper. They tease him and the bubble bursts. A swinging board pictured in a bubble before it broke. That is my story. It may be a very pretty story, but you told it very sadly, and you didn't mention Kai at all. What did the hyacinth say? There were three sisters, quite transparent and very fair. One wore a red dress, the second wore a blue one, and the third went all in white. Hand in hand they danced in the clear moonlight beside a calm lake. They were not elfin folk, they were human beings. The air was sweet, and the sisters disappeared into the forest. The fragrance of the air grew sweeter. Three coffins, in which lie the three sisters, glide out of the forest and across the lake. The fireflies hover above them like little flickering lights. Are the dancing sisters sleeping, or are they dead? The fragrance of the flowers say they are dead, and the evening bell tolls for their funeral. You are making me very unhappy, little Gerda said. Your fragrance is so strong that I cannot help thinking of those dead sisters. Oh, could little Kai really be dead? The roses have been down under the ground, and they say no. Ding dong, told the hyacinth bells. We do not toll for little Kai. We do not know him. We are simply singing our song, the only song we know. And Gerda went on to the buttercup that shone among its glossy green leaves. You are like a bright little sun, said Gerda. Tell me, do you know where I can find my playmate? And the buttercup shone brightly as it looked up at Gerda. But what sort of song would a buttercup sing? It certainly wouldn't be about Kai. In a small courtyard, God's sun was shining brightly on the very first day of spring. Its beams glanced along the white wall of the house next door, and close by, the first yellow flowers of spring shining like gold in the warm sunlight. An old grandmother was sitting outside in her chair. Her granddaughter, 
a poor but very pretty maidservant, had just come home for a little visit. She kissed her grandmother, and there was gold, a heart full of gold in that kiss. Gold on her lips, gold in her dreams, and gold above in the morning beams. There, I've told you my little story, said the buttercup. Oh, my poor grandmother, said Gerda. She will miss me so. She must be grieving for me as much as she did for little Kai. But I'll soon go home again, and I'll bring Kai with me. There's no use asking the flowers about him. They don't know anything except their own songs, and they haven't any news for me. Then she tucked up her little skirt so that she could run away faster, but the narcissus tapped against her leg as she was jumping over it. So she stopped and leaned over the tall flower. Perhaps you have something to tell me? she said. What did the narcissus say? I can see myself. I can see myself. Oh, how sweet is my own fragrance. Up in the narrow garret there is a little dancer, half-dressed. First she stands on one leg, then she stands on both, and kicks her heels at the whole world. She is an illusion of the stage. She pours water from a teapot over a piece of cloth she is holding. It is her bodice. Cleanliness is such a virtue. Her white dress hangs from a hook. It, too, has been washed in the teapot and dried on the roof. She puts it on and ties a saffron scarf around her neck to make the dress seem whiter. Point your toes. See how straight she balances on that single stem. I can see myself. I can see myself. I'm not interested, said Gerda. What a thing to tell me about. She ran to the end of the garden, and though the gate was fastened, she worked the rusty latch until it gave way, and the gate flew open. Little Gerda scampered out into the wide world in her bare feet. She looked back three times, but nobody came after her. At last, she could run no farther and she sat down to rest on a big stone. And when she looked up, she saw that summer had gone by, and it was late in the fall. She could never have guessed it inside the beautiful garden, where the sun was always shining, and the flowers of every season were always in full bloom. Gracious, how long I've dallied, Gerda said. Fall is already here. I can't rest any longer. She got up to run on. But how footsore and tired she was, and how cold and bleak everything around her looked. The long leaves of the willow tree had turned quite yellow, and damp puffs of mist dropped from them like drops of water. One leaf after another fell to the ground. Only the blackthorn still bore fruit, and its fruit was so sour that it set your teeth on edge. Oh, how dreary and grey the wide world looked. Fourth Story, The Prince and the Princess The next time that Gerda was forced to rest, a big crow came hopping across the snow in front of her. For a long time, he had been watching her and cocking his head to one side. And now he said, Caw, caw, good crop day. He could not say it any better, but he felt kindly inclined toward the little girl and asked her where she was going in the great wide world all alone. Gerda understood him when he said alone, and she knew its meaning all too well. She told the crow the whole story of her life, and asked if he hadn't seen Kai. The crow gravely nodded his head and cawed. Well, maybe I have. Maybe I have. What? Do you really think you have? The little girl cried and almost hugged the crow to death as she kissed him. Gently, gently, said the crow. I think that it may have been little Kai that I saw, but if it was, then he has forgotten you for the princess. Does he live with a princess? Gerda asked. Yes, listen, said the crow. But it is hard for me to speak your language. If you understand crow talk, I can tell you much more easily. I don't know that language, said Gerda. My grandmother knows it just as well as she knows baby talk, and I do wish I had learned it. No matter, said the crow. 
I'll tell you as well as I can, though that won't be any too good. And he told her all that he knew. In the kingdom where we are now, there is a princess who was uncommonly clever, and no wonder. She has read all the newspapers in the world and forgotten them again. That's how clever she is. Well, not long ago, she was sitting on her throne. That's by no means as much fun as people suppose. So she fell to humming an old tune. And the refrain of it happened to run, Why, oh, why shouldn't I get married? Why, that's an idea, said she. And she made up her mind to marry as soon as she could find the sort of husband who could give a good answer when anyone spoke to him, instead of one of those fellows who merely stand around looking impressive, for that is so tiresome. She had the drums drubbed to call together all her ladies in waiting, and when they heard what she had in mind, they were delighted. Oh, we like that, they said. We were just thinking the very same thing. Believe me, said the crow, every word I tell you is true. I have a tame lady love who has the run of the palace, and I had the whole story straight from her. Of course, his lady love was also a crow, for birds of a feather will flock together. The newspapers immediately came out with a border of hearts and the initials of the princess, and you could read an announcement that any presentable young man might go to the palace and talk with her. The one who spoke best and who seemed most at home in the palace would be chosen by the princess as her husband. Yes, yes, said the crow. Believe me, that's as true as it is that here I sit. Men flocked to the palace, and there was much crowding and crushing. But on neither the first nor the second day was anyone chosen. Out in the street, they were all glib talkers. But after they entered the palace gate where the guardsmen were stationed in their silver-braided uniforms, and after they climbed the staircase lined with footmen in gold-embroidered livery, they arrived in the brilliantly lighted reception halls without a word to say. And when they stood in front of the princess on her throne, the best they could do was to echo the last word of her remarks, and she didn't care to hear it repeated. It was just as if everyone in the throne room had his stomach filled with snuff and had fallen asleep. For as soon as they were back in the streets, there was no stopping their talk. The line of candidates extended all the way from the town gates to the palace. I saw them myself, said the crow. They got hungry and they got thirsty, but from the palace, they got nothing. Not even a glass of lukewarm water. To be sure. Some of the clever candidates had brought sandwiches with them, but they did not share them with their neighbors. Each man thought, just let him look hungry, then the princess won't take him. But Kai, little Kai, Gerda interrupted. When did he come? Was he among those people? Give me time, give me time. We are just coming to him. On the third day, a little person, with neither horse nor carriage, strode boldly up to the palace. His eyes sparkled the way yours do, and he had handsome long hair, but his clothes were poor. Oh, that was Kai, Gerda said and clapped her hands in glee. Now I found him. He had a little knapsack on his back, the crow told her. No, that must have been his sled, said Gerda. He was carrying it when he went away. Hmm, maybe so, the crow said. I didn't look at it carefully. But my tame lady love told me that when he went through the palace gate and saw the guardsmen in silver and on the staircase the footmen in gold, he wasn't at all taken aback. He nodded and he said to them, It must be very tiresome to stand on the stairs. I'd rather go inside. The halls were brilliantly lighted. Ministers of state and privy councillors were walking about barefooted, carrying golden trays in front of them. It was enough to make anyone feel solemn, and his boots creaked dreadfully. But he wasn't a bit afraid. That certainly must have been Kai, said Gerda. I know he was wearing new boots. I heard them creaking in grandmother's rooms. Oh, they creaked all right, said the crow but it was little enough he cared as he walked straight to the princess, who was sitting on a pearl as big as a spinning wheel. 
all the ladies in waiting with their attendants and their attendants' attendants, and all the lords in waiting with their gentlemen and their gentlemen's men, each of whom had his page with him, were standing there, and the nearer they stood to the door, the more arrogant they looked. The gentlemen's men's pages, who always wore slippers, were almost too arrogant to look at as they stood at the threshold. That must have been terrible, little Gerda exclaimed. And yet, Kai won the princess? If I weren't a crow, I would have married her myself, for all that I'm engaged to another. They say he spoke as well as I do when I speak my crow language. Or so my tame lady love tells me. He was dashing and handsome, and he was not there to court the princess, but to hear her wisdom. This he liked, and she liked him. Of course it was Kai, said Gerda. He was so clever that he could do mental arithmetic, even with fractions. Oh, please take me to the palace. That's easy enough to say, said the crow. But how can we manage it? I'll talk it over with my tame lady love, and she may be able to suggest something. But I must warn you that a little girl like you will never be admitted. Oh, yes, I shall, said Gerda. When Kai hears about me, he will come out to fetch me at once. Wait for me beside that stile, the crow said. He wagged his head and off he flew. Darkness had set in when he got back. Crow, crow, he said. My lady love sends you her best wishes, and here's a little loaf of bread for you. She found it in the kitchen where they have all the bread they need, and you must be hungry. You simply can't get into the palace with those bare feet. The guardsmen in silver and the footmen in gold would never permit it. But don't you cry. We'll find a way. My lady love knows of a little back staircase that leads up to the bedroom, and she knows where they keep the key to it. Then they went into the garden and down the wide promenade, where the leaves were falling one by one. When one by one the lights went out in the palace, the crow led little Gerda to the back door, which stood ajar. Oh, how her heart did beat with fear and longing. It was just as if she were about to do something wrong. Yet she only wanted to make sure that this really was little Kai. Yes, truly, it must be Kai, she thought as she recalled his sparkling eyes and his long hair. She remembered exactly how he looked when he used to smile at her as they sat under the roses at home. Wouldn't he be glad to see her? Wouldn't he be interested in hearing how far she had come to find him? And how sad they had all been when he didn't come home. She was so frightened, and yet so happy. Now they were on the stairway. A little lamp was burning on a cupboard, and there stood the tame crow, cocking her head to look at Gerda, who made the curtsy that her grandmother had taught her. My fiancé has told me many charming things about you, dear young lady, she said. Your biography, as one might say, is very touching. Kindly take the lamp and I shall lead the way. We shall keep straight ahead where we aren't apt to run into anyone. It seems to me that someone is on the stairs behind us, said Gerda. Things brushed past, and from the shadows on the wall, they seemed to be horses with spindly legs and waving manes. And there were shadows of huntsmen, ladies and gentlemen on horseback. Those are only dreams, said the crow. They come to take the thoughts of their royal masters off to the chase. That's just as well for it will give you a good opportunity to see them while they sleep. But I trust that, when you rise to high position and power, you will show a grateful heart. Tut, tut, you've no need to say that, said the forest crow. Now they entered the first room. It was hung with rose-colored satin, embroidered with flowers. The dream shadows were flitting by so fast that Gerda could not see the lords and ladies. Hall after magnificent hall quite bewildered her, until at last they reached the royal bedroom. The ceiling of it was like the top of a huge palm tree, with leaves of glass, costly glass. In the middle of the room, two beds hung from a massive stem of gold. Each of them looked like a lily. One bed was white, and there lay the princess. The other was red, and there Gerda hoped to find little Kai.
she bent one of the scarlet petals and saw the nape of a little brown neck. Surely this must be Kai. She called his name aloud and held the lamp near him. The dreams on horseback pranced into the room again as he awoke and turned his head, and it was not little Kai at all. The prince only resembled Kai about the neck, but he was young and handsome. The princess peeked out of her lily-white bed and asked what had happened. Little Gerda cried and told them all about herself and about all that the crows had done for her. Poor little thing, the prince and princess said. They praised the crows and said they weren't the least bit angry with them, but not to do it again. Furthermore, they should have a reward. Would you rather fly about without any responsibilities? said the princess. Or would you care to be appointed court crows for life, with rights to all scraps from the kitchen? Both the crows bowed low and begged for permanent office, for they thought of their future and said it was better to provide for their old age, as they called it. The prince got up and let Gerda have his bed. It was the utmost that he could do. She clasped her little hands and thought, How nice the people and the birds are. She closed her eyes, fell peacefully asleep, and all the dreams came flying back again. They looked like angels, and they drew a little sled on which Kai sat. He nodded to her, but this was only in a dream, so it all disappeared when she woke up. The next day, she was dressed from her head to her heels in silk and in velvet, too. They asked her to stay at the palace and have a nice time there, but instead, she begged them to let her have a little carriage, a little horse, and a pair of little boots so that she could drive out into the wide world to find Kai. They gave her a pair of boots and also a muff. They dressed her as nicely as could be, and, when she was ready to go, there at the gate stood a brand new carriage of pure gold. On it, the coat of arms of the prince and the princess glistened like a star. The coachman, the footman, and the postilions, for postilions there were, all wore golden crowns. The prince and the princess themselves helped her into the carriage and wished her Godspeed. The forest crow, who was now a married man, accompanied her for the first three miles and sat beside Gerda, for it upset him to ride backward. The other crow stood beside the gate and waved her wings. She did not accompany them because she was suffering from a headache brought on by eating too much in her new position. Inside, the carriage was lined with sugared cookies, and the seats were filled with fruit and gingerbread. Fare you well! Fare you well! called the prince and princess. Little Gerda cried now, and the crow cried too for the first few miles. Then the crow said goodbye, and that was the saddest leave-taking of all. He flew up into a tree and waved his big black wings as long as he could see the carriage, which flashed as brightly as the sun. End of Part 2 You may be wondering why I didn't abridge this section. I mean, what in the world do the stories of the flowers and the detour with the crows have to do with our main theme and storyline? A lot, actually. Don't wander away from the campfire. We're about to shed some light on the incredible treasure hidden in part two of this story. We return to Gerda anguishing at home over the loss of Kai. All winter long, there has been no word of him, and when spring comes, she ventures out alone to commiserate with nature over the loss of her friend. But when she tells the sun and the swallows that Kai is dead and gone, they tell her they don't believe it. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul states that every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a direct reference back to the law given in Deuteronomy and reinforced by Jesus in Matthew 18, stating that the testimony of two or three witnesses is required to convict someone of a crime and or gently correct a believer's wrong behavior. Having been gently corrected and told that Kai is alive from the mouths of two witnesses, Gerda begins to believe that it is true. She wants a third source to completely confirm it, and offers her prized red shoes to the river in exchange for answers. Red shoes appear in another Anderson story, 
and symbolize female sexuality and coming of age. From the Wizard of Oz film until now, they have come to represent untapped power and potential waiting to be unleashed. We know that red also stands for romance, blood, sanctification, passion, and danger, depending on the context in which it is mentioned. Gerda says that Kai has never seen her red shoes. This means that Kai has not seen Gerda in a romantic way, or discovered that she has feelings for him deeper than friendship. She has modestly hidden them until now, not even truly exploring them herself until disaster and danger stir them up in her with renewed urgency. Our girl is growing up, and she is being called to womanhood quickly, for she must bravely traverse the world alone to execute her dangerous rescue mission and save her friend. She will need to be mature and discerning, while never truly losing what is good about her childlike innocence. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's easier to be one thing or the other, a girl or a woman. When you are a combination of both, the world is an unkind place. You're prone to experience suffering and people trying to take advantage of you when you work to keep your heart alive. But the Lord wants us to do this. God asks for a bride with a heart of flesh, who is watching and waiting with an eye on the sky for his return. A warrior bride who battles the kingdom of darkness with his living word and faithfully completes the good works he has given her to steward. Ezekiel 36.26, Ephesians 6.12, and 2.10. Gerda is just such a bride, but she is willing to surrender this new stage of her life and growth, even her untapped potential, to the river if it will return Kai to her. The river sends the red shoes right back to her. It will not take them in exchange for Kai because it has not stolen him away, but also because Gerda's power and new stage of life are rightfully hers to keep. They have been entrusted to her so that she can move forward in her own life and save Kai. Unconvinced, Gerda leaps into a boat resting further downstream and hurls her shoes even farther, unwittingly casting off the little vessel and propelling herself at top speed toward the beginning of her quest. While it is true that she does not catch her shoes the second time, it is interesting to note that they remain in the river, perpetually cleansed by its waters. She has set her mind to her quest and dedicated herself to the Holy Spirit for safekeeping. She will remain pure in her heart, even when she is tested and tried in her new phase of life. Her passion, power, and growth are part of the river of life flowing out of her and spurring her on in her journey. Like Thumbelina, she eventually takes joy in her trip down the river, allowing the sights and sounds of creation around her to soothe her spirit and restore her soul. However, as it always happens when we begin to live out our God-given destinies, testing comes. Gerda's test will look much different than Kai's. Because Kai is logical and eager to grow up too fast, he is given the opportunity to do it at warp speed and push his body to the point of death. Gerda, more emotionally minded, is not as eager to leave childhood behind, which is both a blessing and a curse. While her heart willingly holds on to the virtue and bravery God has woven through it, it also longs to have peace and stability to go back to the way things were before her friend became cruel and the future uncertain. Her temptation will be to forsake womanhood and maturity in her walk, stopping her development and regressing into the safety of childhood. Growing up girl, many of us found ourselves locked in this struggle earlier in life than generations before us. While guys go through a form of this too, Girls are forced to grow up fast as the outward changes in our bodies signal to the world that we are ready for things our minds and hearts aren't prepared for yet. We have to be ready to defend ourselves before we even comprehend the full scope of what we're fighting to protect. And it's exhausting. It's easy to fall into the trap of wanting to be a little girl again, to escape the pressure and terror of having more asked or demanded or taken from you than you are willing and able to give. We hatch out different schemes to escape. Some turn to anorexia or bulimia to stave off or hide natural female development. Some festoon themselves with Disney paraphernalia to remind themselves of the innocence and joy in which they once found safety and freedom. And some of us imprison our hearts in maximum security facilities so that no one can get close enough to hurt us again. 
We avoid the company of boys and men because we feel safer with women. There are big, gaping holes in all of these plans, and none of them are God-breathed. But he'll allow us to take shelter under these fig leaves until the winter winds rip them to pieces and send us out into the cold to run to God and get our strength, security, and refuge from him, as we should have done in the first place. Gerda is about to get just such an opportunity. It isn't long before she comes upon a strange cottage in a cherry orchard just off the riverbank, guarded by wooden soldiers. An old woman with a crooked walking stick and a sun hat painted with beautiful flowers catches sight of Gerda and helps her to the shore. Gerda is frightened of her at first, but soon realizes that she does not mean her harm, at least not directly. After telling the old woman her story, she joins her in the garden to meet the beautiful flowers there. Then she enters the cottage, where she is greeted by a large bowl of cherries waiting for her on the table, which she happily pounces on. Cherries have a dual symbolism. They can represent reproduction, because of the flesh of the fruit being destroyed to make way for the seed and new growth. They can also represent innocence and eternal youth. In this case, Gerda is allowing herself to consume the illusion of eternal youth. She forgets her quest and the desire to bring kind new life and permits herself to slip into the dreams of the childhood she had just begun to leave behind. While she eats the cherries, the old woman locks the door and begins brushing the memories of Kai out of Gerda's hair. The old woman, whom I grew up knowing as the Lady of Summer, though she is not called that here, is not deemed evil by Anderson but she practices witchcraft and manipulation as skillfully as any villain. Her ill deeds stemming from good intentions render her the photo-negative of the wicked stepmother. Rather than preventing the heroine from growing up out of the fear that she will supplant or surpass her, the Lady of Summer is willing to derail Gerda's quest and development in order to satisfy her desire to have a child. If the good mother did not die in all of the lost woman stories, it is possible that she could morph into the Lady of Summer, because she doesn't want her little girl to grow up and be torn apart by the dangers of the world. Stay with me. The world is dark and wild. Stay a child while you can be a child with me, sings the witch in Sondheim's Into the Woods. In order to ensure that Gerda will stay here and be happy with her, the old woman charms away all the roses from her garden with her crooked stick forcing the healthy, thriving blooms to conceal their ravishing beauty under the dead black ground. This sabotage of the roses, which represent Gerda, her relationship with Christ, her love for Kai, and her development into a strong, beautiful woman, is just as damaging as Cinderella's stepfamily abusing her, stripping her of her position, and throwing the ashy gray bedgown over her glorious form. All of the actions I've just described are a form of attack against the heroine's identity and her confidence as a capable daughter of God made in his image. When we are so preoccupied with battling or succumbing to these onslaughts, it's easy to get distracted from the one person on whom our eyes should be fixed. And that leaves us wide open for destruction. With all thoughts of God, deep romantic love, purpose, adult female identity, and danger hidden away. Gerda is free to regress into the Lady of Summer's darling daughter. The desire to have a child or keep someone safe is not wrong, but a little danger is needed to bring out the best in us. If we are never tested, we will never grow, because trials produce perseverance and mature us in our faith. James 1, 3-4 Overprotective parenting produces weak offspring who can't defend themselves against the powers of darkness because they haven't been taught how to fight. While there are times to pray for a hedge of protection, we have to recognize that it will be removed sometimes for testing, pruning, and growth, as it was in the case of Job. Job would never have been cured of his pride if he hadn't taken hit after hit and chosen to cling to God and be humbled by him. I quit praying for protection from all harm and evil for those on my prayer list because it robs them of the opportunity for God to train their hands for war and their fingers for battle. Psalm 144.1 There are absolutely times when praying for protection is necessary, 
but instead of defaulting to that every time, I pray that God will equip them with the wisdom, knowledge, alertness, discernment, favor, the right words to say, the right actions to take, and the boldness to speak and do those things at the right time. Gerda cannot be allowed to forget what she has learned and abandon her post because she won't be the only one doomed by her decision to hide in childhood. Kai too will suffer and diminish into nothing if she does not wake up and rescue him. She stays with the Lady of Summer many days, playing in the garden until sunset and curling up at night under a blue-violet quilt in the cottage. By the way, did you notice that the colors in the old woman's house are the primary colors so often used in children's toys? Red, yellow, blue. Simple, easy to focus on, undemanding of discernment. They do not challenge Gerda at all, but lull her into sweet dreams and carefree days. But her spirit is not asleep. It is restless, knowing that there is something missing in the garden, something vital to her heart. She just can't put her finger on it. One day, when she is staring at the old woman's sun hat, Gerda's eyes fix on the most beautifully painted flower on it, a rose. In her selfish zeal to banish them from the garden, the Lady of Summer had forgotten to charm the rose from her hat. Instantly, the spell is broken. Gerda dashes through the gardens, searching desperately for roses, only to find that there are none. Grief-stricken, Gerda collapses to the ground, sobbing. As her tears water the earth, the roses rise from the ground, restored to full bloom by the river of life flowing from Gerda's broken heart. She embraces them, remembering home and Kai and her quest to find him. This moment is a beautiful foreshadowing of Gerda's final triumph at the end of the story. Rather than spoiling it, I will reiterate that the Holy Spirit in us is compared to streams of living water flowing from our hearts. Gerda's tears come from grief stirred up in the wellspring of her life, her heart. They baptize and cleanse what was buried, rededicating it to God and restoring it to abundant life. Her love, her sense of identity, her relationship with God, and her quest are redeemed by the sacrifice of her broken heart and humble spirit. Psalm 51:17. Frantic at the thought that she has wasted so much time in hiding, she asks the roses if Kai is dead. Gently, they assure her that they have been underground with the dead, and Kai is not among them. Relieved, Gerda runs from flower to flower, hoping that one of them will have more news of Kai, but none of them can give her a straight answer. Only the roses are direct with her, because they are her symbolic link to God and to Kai. In a sequence that would leave Lewis Carroll beaming at its beautiful complexity of symbolism tucked away in nonsense, each of the flowers tells Gerda its own story. While at first glance they may seem unrelated to the main plot, they are, in fact, Anderson's version of a dream device, metaphors to allow us to explore pieces of Gerda's subconscious thoughts as she comes to terms with the changes she is facing and chooses whether or not to continue her quest. The tiger lily tells the story of a Hindu woman forced to participate in the barbaric ritual of suti, which means chaste wife or good woman in Sanskrit, Britannica.com. When her husband dies, a wife chooses, or more likely, is compelled to be burned alive on the funeral pyre of her dead husband to show her purity and devotion to him. Because widows often received inheritance from their deceased husbands, they were cruelly encouraged to commit soti in order to make their inheritance available to other relatives. Britannica.com In the eyes of her culture, what little value she has is terminated with the life of her spouse. Even though the woman in the Tiger Lily story submits to the ritual, her mind is on the man she truly loves, who stands in the crowd watching her execution. The Tiger Lily asks if this woman's love for him will outlast the flames consuming her body or if it will perish with her. This fairy tale illuminates the questions Gerda is posing to herself. Is her love for Kai stronger than death? Can she choose to be faithful to him for the boy he once was and the man he could be? Or will she allow her love to perish in the flames of his destruction and her regression? 
We are not told the color of the tiger lily's petals, but if they are orange, they signal friendship, passion, and love stronger than death. Reference.com Gerda must choose to accept that when she finds Kai, he will not be the same. The friendship that was between them will either grow cold or blossom into something more. The old must pass away so that new life can begin. Although he is altered, her love for him must remain constant, having endured trial by fire in order to be strong enough to break his chains and set him free. Furthermore, Gerda is beginning to question her own value. Is she truly worth nothing because Kai does not esteem her due to her emotional nature? Or is she like the woman on the funeral pyre, with more inside of her to give than even death itself could consume? We know that she is, but she has to sort this out for herself. The danger is that if she comes to believe Kai's assessment of her worth, she will be paralyzed and unable to help him because she is too busy nursing her wounds. The trumpet flower tells of an old castle in the mountains, rising high above a narrow path. Wow, that's loaded. We know that castles are fortresses, meant to safeguard those inside and keep enemies at bay. The woman in the castle is Gerda's heart, as evidenced by Anderson comparing her to a rose. Until recently, Gerda has been very good at guarding her heart and preserving the wellspring of life flowing out of her. Proverbs 4.23 the castle is reached by a narrow path, because small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7.14 Gerda has found it. She loves the Lord and walks in His ways. She's just coming out of the struggle at the moment. The castle is high on a mountain, because mountains are difficult to climb, in keeping with Matthew 7.14, and they represent elevated thought and perspective as mentioned in East of the Sun and West of the Moon. When God wanted to draw someone near to him, he often made a mountain their meeting place. Gerda is wondering in the secret place of her pure heart if Kai will ever return to himself and to her on his own. Can't she just be the childlike damsel waiting for his arrival and avoid the heartache of traveling all this way to find him only to be rejected? Trumpet flowers are part of the deadly nightshade family. Ingesting them causes hallucinations, seizures, and eventually, death. Gardenandhappy.com This means that waiting on Kai is hopeless, poisonous, and deadly. She cannot sit and dream that he will be healed and come looking for her. She must go and hunt him down herself. If she does not, he will die, and she will languish, living half a life, always wishing for what could have been. There is a time to wait on God, and there is a time to obediently leap into action. There are consequences if you don't. The victory you were meant to enjoy at first obedience may be given to someone else, as in the case of Barak and Jael in Judges 4. The snowdrop story of the boy playing with his sisters on the swing while excluding the little black dog is absolutely heartbreaking. The boy is Kai, standing over logic and perfection, his new playmates whom he finds absolutely irresistible. Notice that they are dressed in white, like snowflakes and the Snow Queen. As he swings behind them, he blows soap bubbles, symbolizing the fragile and transient nature of his new idols. All things will pass away in the end, except God and his word. Matthew 24, 35 Even the rules we lived by on earth will change as our eyes are opened even wider to the truth of God's best will and his original design for so many of the things we have twisted. In the Snowdrop story, Gerda is the little black dog. She has become the black sheep in Kai's mind, nowhere near as perfect as the Snow Queen and all she represents. He and his idols tease Gerda, belittling her because she cannot climb up to their lofty mental plane, free of weak, useless emotion and imperfection. The dog loses his temper in frustration as Gerda is tempted to at the thought of Kai rejecting her. In the end, the swing breaks, representing Kai's destruction if he continues to resist Gerda's efforts to help him remember his godly identity. Gerda just wants to be part of Kai's world, but fears he won't make room for her in his heart, even if she is able to reach him. The fun and joy they once shared, he will have with someone else, 
perhaps the Snow Queen. You'll remember from the little girl and the winter whirlwinds that in Europe, snowdrops are the first sign of spring, a beacon of hope for change and joy after a long, dark winter. Snowdrops have been used in different medicines to treat memory loss, assuage grief and trauma, and prevent paralysis. Gerda's hope is that Kai still treasures the memories of their time together as much as she does, and that they will revitalize him, encouraging him to come back to himself, to enjoy life with her again, forsaking his affair with cold logic for the warmth of her love. This hope encourages her to keep pressing onward to reach him, but she is being paralyzed by her own fears even as she is deciding to move forward. What should she do if he rejects her? Well, she could always return to the Lady of Summer. But this is not a life-giving decision, as evidenced by the hyacinth story of the three ghostly sisters who dance in the woods in red, blue, and white dresses before laying down in their coffins to die, floating down the river under a sparkling banner of fireflies. While it may be lovely for a while to dance like a child under the eyes of the Lady of Summer, Gerda's passion, spirit, and purity, represented by the red, blue, and white dresses, will wither and die in their prime, becoming ghostly wraiths in the absence of testing and growth. Hyacinths themselves are mildly toxic and represent love that continues after death. Gerda's love, symbolized by the sparkling fireflies, the light in the darkness, may continue after her spiritual demise, but she will be powerless to free Kai if she gives in to the temptation to regress into childhood out of fear that she will fail in her quest. But as we know, not everything about childhood is deadly. There are good things that we should take with us on the journey to maturity. As we discussed last time, God wants us to come to Him with the trust of children, imitating their ability to easily forgive and humbly receive instruction while practicing unconditional love. We see this in the story of the buttercup. It tells of the first day of spring, representing hope, with God's bright sunshine bursting forth, illuminating a white house and a field of yellow flowers. A beautiful but poor maidservant visits her grandmother and gives her a loving kiss. The buttercup mentions that there is gold in the kiss, gold in the girl's heart, her lips, her dreams, and the sunbeams surrounding them. This, of course, is a picture of Gerda and her grandmother. It is meant to reassure Gerda that the love and lessons she has received from her grandmother in childhood are treasures to take with her throughout her life and help her in her quest. Even though she is struggling with her decision, Gerda is pure, brave, and righteous, as evidenced by the gold around and inside her. She is passing the test, being refined through trial by fire and emerging purified with the best parts of herself on full display, shining with God's glory. Job 23.10, 1 Peter 1, 6-7 Buttercups are referred to as miniature suns because of their brilliant golden-yellow hue. They reflect the sun's glory, just as people are made to reflect God's. They are also specially designed with a cup at the base of the petals where insects can hide away while drinking the buttercup's nectar. God is often described as our refuge and our hiding place. He is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We get our nourishment and strength from abiding in Him, just as pollinating insects are refreshed by the nectar in the flower's cups and enabled to continue all the good works they were created to do. Gerda gains her strength from her reliance on God and His mercies. Because of this, Gerda's warm heart will keep her alive during her arduous journey and provide a safe place for Kai to come to, if he is at all willing to be rescued. Gerda is so frantic to hear specific news of Kai, that all of these nuances and hidden messages are lost on her, with the exception of the Buttercup story. Restored by the memory of her grandmother, Gerda determines that she will return to her and bring Kai home. Taking the roses at their word, she is about to flee the garden to search for him, when she is caught by a narcissus. We all know what those stand for, but this one makes Gerda particularly uncomfortable. Like beauty, she is not quite ready to see herself as a sensuous woman, 
and the Narcissus's insistence of focusing on self and feminine beauty disturbs her. God made feminine beauty to reflect an aspect of his glory. It is not wrong. Notice that the graceful dancer in the story is in white garments. She is pure and made exactly as she is meant to be. She cleans her clothes and exercises her muscles in dance. She stewards her gifts well. But then we get the idea that she worships them too much. The color saffron has occult and Eastern religious significance, but none biblically. The dancer, with whom the Narcissus clearly identifies, ties a saffron ribbon around her throat to make her garments seem whiter. She is compromising her beliefs, mixing in occult influence in order to achieve a false idea of beauty and power. Like Narcissus himself, and the flower bearing his name, the dancer makes an idol of herself rather than deriving worth from God who made her. This is made even clearer by the fact that the dancer is in a garret room, which you'll remember represents the mind. Her antics in the room are a metaphor for complete self-obsession. She's always on her mind. It is good that Goethe rejects this, but she must be careful not to despise female beauty and maturity altogether. We have hope that she will embrace both her inner and outer transformations and retain her good heart, because she conquers the desire to remain a child with the Lady of Summer and rejects the fear that she will use her femininity for evil by fleeing the scene altogether. Wrenching open the gate and stumbling into the forest, Gerda runs away as fast as she can and stops to rest on a rock. We know from Catherine Crackernuts that this refers to the house the wise man builds on the rock, Jesus, the cornerstone of the living temple of God. Luke 6.48, Ephesians 2.19-22 Grounding herself once more in the truth, Gerda purges herself of the influence of the Lady of Summer's magic putting her childhood in its rightful place and recalling who God made her to be now and what she is meant to do. Looking around, Gerda realizes that while she was being tested, autumn has arrived. Wasting no more time, she plunges into the trees, letting herself get lost in the woods to find what she is looking for. When she stops to rest again, she meets a kind crow who befriends her and attempts to help her find Kai. He thinks he may have seen him, but isn't sure. The young man he is thinking of is very similar to the boy Gerda knew. This is because he is a foreshadowing of Kai as he will be, restored to his former glory. Gerda is afraid at first when the crow says that if the boy he has seen is Kai, he has forsaken her for a princess. He's already ditched her for the Snow Queen, so it isn't hard to believe that he would do something like that again. But then, she could forgive him anything if she could see him and know that he is well and happy. The crow's description of the prince and princess is in fact a foreshadowing of Kai and Gerda meeting each other as young adults. In the future, Kai in his restored glory will seek wisdom, not knowledge for knowledge's sake. He will value Gerda again, because her godly heart is a wellspring of wisdom. Furthermore, because he will recognize the value of the union of heart and head knowledge, rather than completely esteeming one over the other, Kai will be effective in all circumstances. Notice that the princess despises the idea of marrying a man who looks good, but has nothing to offer from his heart or his mind. She will not even provide meals for such men who are presumptuous enough to think that they can win her. There's a reason most of us share her sentiments. Our creator does, too. He laments when people draw near to him with their mouths and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Matthew 15, 8 God desires true love and relationship even more than we do. He's not interested in a pharisaical courtship with a whitewashed tomb of a bride. He commands those who would pursue him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Luke 10, 27 Gerda does love the Lord with everything in her, and that love overflows and pours over to Kai. In Christ-like fashion, she has dedicated her life to rescuing him. Her hope is that once she finds him, 
he will have the same kind of love in his heart again. The crow and his lady love help Gerda sneak into the palace to see if the prince is really Kai, only to discover that they are mistaken. The majestic couple is generous and kind, providing royal positions and benefits for the crows and provisions for Gerda, outfitting her well so that she may continue her quest lacking nothing. Initially, they offer to have her stay with them on holiday, but Gerda is wise enough to know that if she doesn't keep moving, Kai will be lost. Befitting her spiritual state, they give her a golden sleigh to travel in, marked with the royal emblem. The crow travels the first part of the journey with her before returning home to the castle, and the two tearfully bid goodbye. You might wonder why they become attached to each other so quickly, or what the point of this interlude is other than making sure Gerda has enough gear to travel north. Remember that Gerda has endured the abuses of Kai's cruelty for months, and has been subjected to manipulation nearly as long by someone she trusted to take care of her. That's a lot of wear and tear on a heart, even one that loves as well as hers. In order to restore her soul and prepare her to continue onward, Gerda needs time with caring people who do good for others because it is in their nature to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave us. Ephesians 4.32 The easy friendship with the crows and loving acceptance of the prince and princess are what she has been missing in her own life for such a long time. Being with them helps her remember what she's fighting for and encourages her not to give up. As children of God, we are meant to encourage each other and build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, and spur one another on to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. We are called to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 God knows that if we are not encouraged to keep fighting the good fight, we will crumble under the repeated blows dealt to us by the world. That's why He commands us to speak life into our brothers and sisters. Even the strongest people who seem to be the best exhorters you know need the compassionate love described in these passages to restore their souls and prevent themselves from growing weary as they do the good works God made them to do. Refreshed by the kindness of her new friends, Gerda finds herself more prepared and determined than ever to complete her mission. We'll ride with her to the frozen north in the conclusion of The Snow Queen. Thanks for stopping by. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to see what else is going on in the fairy tale forest or support the show, check out the Lost in the Woods Buy Me a Coffee page. I'm Autumn Woods, and I can't wait to see you on the path next time you get Lost in the Woods.